Now it's one thing for God to reveal a righteousness and assure us that we need it. It's another thing to make sure that everyone believes that that's a necessity. You get people turning around and saying, well, I pay my way, I try to be kind, I don't do dishonest things, you know, just like the Pharisee, I fast twice a week and so on. So now I want to take another line. If you have started this two capital letter R's, I've now written on the blackboard, Righteousness Revealed. And now I've put a second one. I've put Righteousness Required. Now you want to remember that there was a strong Jewish element in the church at Rome, Christian Jews, but Christian Jews never forgot that they were the chosen people, that they were given the law of God, and it was a great problem to get them to realise they needed this gift of righteousness just the same as any other. If you look at chapter 10, you'll see that after he's gone all this way through, that's the thing he focuses upon. The first four verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, here it comes out again, you see, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ, not the law of Moses, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Well now, sometimes it's wise not to make a frontal attack. Sometimes it's wise to um, go to a person and speak to him a little bit about somebody else. You remember Nathan the prophet was sent by God to charge David with the sin of murder and adultery? Well, I dare say he wasn't very happy about that because David was an autocratic king in those days. And so he went to David and he went a little bit round the subject. He said, you know, there was a wealthy man and there was a poor man, you know how, and David said, ooh, that man shall die. Then he said to him, Thou art the man. So, instead of accusing the Jews of being sinners and needing righteousness, he accused the Gentiles, and of course the bulk of the congregation at Rome would say, Oh yes, oh yes, these Gentiles, they're terrible sinners. So should we see how he does it? His great appeal in the first case is to creation and conscience. You see, all the world has got creation and conscience. All the world hasn't got the law of Moses like the scriptures. Uh, you'll see that in chapter 3 he says um, what advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision or much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God oh yes they had something more than conscience and creation they got scripture but he says what about this Gentile world well he says look the wrath of God is revealed against all men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God, now do notice, God doesn't ask that you should know everything. Creation doesn't teach you all that God is. You can get a little idea of what God is. You get a greater idea when you read the scriptures. And you get a fuller idea when you become more and more acquainted with the personal work of Christ. But each one in his measure. God says, I've never left myself without witness. Paul has quoted that in the Acts of the Apostles. You've got these evidences round about you. And so you see what an indictment it is that we can have in our homes 
a television set demonstrating the last word in up-to-date science. We can see the stars and all the teachings of astronomy and when it's all over we needn't bother our heads about God at all. Well, that's coming home to some, you see, presently. So it says here, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. It definitely says God intends and has used creation for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And God is a, a just God. He says they're clearly seen. You know, a man today who can study science and then turn around and tell you there's no God is practically calling himself in the estimate of God a rogue and a fool. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Because these very men are telling you that there's design in nature. All this fitting of the atoms, all this marvellous chemical affinities and what not that they explain to you are all demanding that there's a designer. So he says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well then, right the way down the rest of this chapter, he shows you the awful condition the world is plunged in when they turned away from the primitive message that creation gives, without excuse. Now when you look at chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. Who's this? Oh, this is the people of Israel he's talking to now. He says, oh, he said, I know you've been condemning the Gentile. You've been saying, oh, they are a bad lot. But he said, you had something more. These Romans that you're condemning because they've gone into such awful sins, they never had a Bible. They had creation. And we might as well finish the word conscience, if you'll look now in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness of their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. You see? So there's conscience and creation in the outside world. They're set by God. But he says to these Jews, it's all you've got something more to answer for. Verse um, 3. And thinkest thou, now that word thinking is not the ordinary word to think. It's American. If you're uh, one of the Americans listening to me just now, it's just the word that we associate with the way you speak. You say, I guess, I calculate, I reckon. That's what they were doing. These Jews were reckoning on something, and it was a false reckoning. He says, and are you reckoning this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same that thou should escape the judgment of God? Oh, what fools you must be to reckon that, you see. So, we come further down in this chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, and he now speaks directly to the Jew. Behold, verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew. Now, this is characteristic of the Jew. And restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent. That's a little dig at somebody who's always boasting about rightly dividing the word of truth and not living up to it. But these people were rightly dividing it. Approving the things which are more excellent. Being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind. 
a light to them which are in darkness. Oh, look at the way he's laying it onto these people. He says, look, that's what you're supposed to be. And because of time, look at verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. So these people who made their boast that they were the chosen people and they had the law of Moses were only condemning themselves the more because they didn't keep it. Well, now in chapter 3, they turned round on him. They said, well, what's the good of being a Jew then? I thought we were a favoured people. What advantage is there? Oh, he says as much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. So they turn round again in verse 9 and say, oh, I see, we are a favoured people. What then? Are we better than they? Oh, now, he says, that's another question. When it's a matter of dispensational truth, it's the Jew first. When it's a matter of doctrinal first, there's no, uh, truth, there's no first about it. You're all of you condemned. That's the difference. Always oh, that I concede that the Jew has an advantage, but that may be against him if he's not keeping the book that's entrusted to him. But to say your advantage makes you better than a Gentile, oh, that's wrong. Listen. Listen. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. He's bringing them together now, you see that they are all under sin. Now, he doesn't go to creation, and he doesn't go to conscience to prove this. See, if he couldn't go to a scripture to prove the Gentile was under sin to a man who never had a Bible in his life. He could only uh, refer to the works of God's hands and the conscience within the man. But he says to these people, you are the ones who boast that you've got the scriptures. You've got the law. Well, he said, it is written. And what was written in the Old Testament wasn't first of all written about these poor heathen. What was written in the Old Testament was written about God's chosen people. There is none righteous. No, not one. It ought to be enough to say there is none righteous, but he goes on and says, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, that are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. You can't escape it, can you? So he has a universal charge against all men, brought against the Gentile, brought against the Jew, that in spite of the witness of creation and conscience and scripture, there isn't one. There is not one in the whole universe that is sinless. And so there is not one in the whole world of God's making that doesn't need the righteousness of God. And there's not one who could ever be saved who does not receive this gift of righteousness for without it, it must be condemnation. I think the Apostle has already made his second move, don't you? In the first chapter, it was righteousness is revealed. And then in the second the, uh, part of the first chapter, the whole of chapter 2 and right into chapter 3, he's stressing and proving that this righteousness is required. After speaking about the extent of this corruption in the human heart, the throat is an open sepulchre, tongues are used deceit, poison of asps under their lips. Oh dear, oh dear. And it goes down and sums it up at the verse 18, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Well now, he's brought it right back to that point. Now, he says, now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. That's right. 
you've boasted up to the, up to the moment that the law belongs to Israel. Well, what the law belongs to Israel, it says to you, Israel. It says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Don't you see? If you've stopped the mouth of God's own special nation, well, you've stopped the mouth of all men. And so he's brought them now down to this terrific level that every mouth may be stopped and all the world brought in or become guilty before God. And when he goes a little bit further down, he touches on it again. He says at the end of verse 22, there is no difference. There is no difference. There's a great difference, he says, in these early chapters between the Jew and the Gentile. He says so, much every way. But with regard to sin and the need of a saviour, no difference. And if you look at chapter 10, he says it again. Verse 11 and 12. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. doesn't say the Jew that believes on him, or the Gentile that believes on him, but whosoever. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the disease is the same and the remedy is the same. So we're back again in this chapter 3. It says in that verse 22, For there is no difference, for all have sinned. Now you know what the all means. He said it so many times. No, not one righteous. No, not one that does good. None understanding, none seeking. So he says, all have sinned and come short. And this word come short is only a New Testament way of saying the Old Testament word for sin. As most of you know, there's a passage in the book of Judges which speaks about some of the tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss the mark. Well, that word not miss is the actual word for sin. And so the apostle who knew his Hebrew, he wrote to these Romans, he says, sin is coming short to the mark. Righteousness can have no degrees about it. Oh, we like to live in a world where we're, you know, almost right. But that's not good enough. If you're not right, you must be wrong. That's very severe and very harsh. And among ourselves, we couldn't live like it. None of us would be, we couldn't live with one another like that. We must keep on giving and taking, but not with regard to the law court of God. It's either right or wrong. Well, he says, you know where you are now, don't you? So far as this is concerned, you are wrong. Well, what are you going to do about it? You could persist in your own self-righteousness and can be condemned, or you can lay down your arms and you can put your trust in the Son of God and you can find that he has suffered in your stead the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. And as we said in the earlier study, we, we once more focus attention upon it in this chapter 3, that it says in verse 25, whom God has set forth, and the word means to set forth publicly something that's been done before all men, before angels and men, set forth Christ to be a propitiation The same word is found in the epistle to the Hebrews as the mercy seat, somewhere where a man can go and find mercy and receive grace and receive forgiveness. A mercy seat through faith in his blood, the sacrifice is stressed, to declare 
his righteousness, that's God's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past. So God could forgive sins in the Old Testament before Christ came because he knew that in the fullness of time that work would be offered. And then he says to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So you see, I believe it's right to tell you, isn't it, that his righteousness, it keeps coming, is one of the dominant notes of this epistle to the Romans. How do you stand in relation to his righteousness? Well, if you're, un- if you're unprotected, if you're exposed, his righteousness must shrivel you and destroy you. But if you're covered with the righteousness of Christ as God's gift to you, you're accepted in the beloved and you are saved. There's the difference between one man and another. Now, at the end of this chapter 3, he sums, himself, he sums up his teaching. As he's done it for us, let us follow in his own steps. He says in verse 27, Where is boasting then? And he answers it. It is excluded. And the word exclude in the Greek means the key has been turned. Locked out. No possibility of boasting in God's presence if you're saved by mercy, saved by grace, saved as a gift, not of works in any shape or form. That's, of course, one of the stumbling blocks. Folks want to earn their salvation. They want to prove they're not so bad as the other person, but that isn't the way. You either come as a penitent or you cannot come at all. So he says, boasting is excluded and shut out. By what law? Am I saved by what law? Works? Oh, no, he says, but by the law of faith. So again, he's stressing the difference between the two approaches. Therefore, we conclude. Here's another logical word. He's given his arguments. He's now coming to his conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's his conclusion. And it's a blessed one to think that it's so written. Now then he asks a question. Is he the God of the Jews only? Now today, that would not be a pertinent question. If you went to many churches, you might have to stand up and say, is he the God of the Gentiles only? Because some Christian churches have got no place for the Jew ever, anymore. But in those days, the Jew was dominant, you see, the Jew first. So he says to them, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Why? How do you make that out? Well, he says that there are differences between the Jew and the Gentile in one shape and form. But there are no difference here. No difference here. For he, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Now, there may be some slight difference between by faith and through faith. But if you have any problem about it, you do both. You be see yours justified by faith and through faith. But I think there is a slight difference in this sense. That if you're speaking to the Jew, he had already been thinking about being justified by the works of the law. So the apostle says, no, you're justified by faith. But the Gentile had never bothered himself about it at all. So he says, you're justified through faith. It may be that he made that slight difference, but it's so slight, it comes to the same thing at the end. And then he asks a question, because it would be in the mind of some, do we then make void the law through faith? You see, here you've got the Old Testament with its law, here you've got the New Testament with its faith, 
And he tells you the one is contrary to the other. But both come from God. Well, the scripture makes it clear that the law was given, but never given to produce life and righteousness. The law was given to make it obvious that you could not be saved by your own works. So I'll finish this subject by quoting from a parallel epistle, the epistle to the Galatians, which says it so much more effectively than I can in a few moments. In chapter 3 of the epistle to the Galatians, here's the same subject coming up again in verse 21. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then against the promises of God? You see? Oh, it says God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And so he stresses again. We go back in mind to that opening witness that he gave in the church at Antioch when he stood up and said, Be it known therefore unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him you are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. If you keep those words well in mind, as you read and read and read again this epistle to the Romans, I think you'll realise what a tremendous place the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ must occupy in any preaching of the gospel or any plan of salvation which you may be able to devise to help others to understand the approach to God at the same time. Well now, next time we meet together in this way with these short studies for young people, I shall want to take this a stage further. So keep your sheet of paper with your capital letter R on it. At the top you have righteousness revealed. You have the second line, righteousness required. And then next time we meet together we shall come into chapter 4 and we shall find righteousness by reckoning. That's anticipating next meeting. And so may the Lord give us grace to realise that we have a Saviour indeed. We have a righteous standing before God, which is a gift by faith. May not, not one of us do despite to the grace of God by belittling it, turning it aside, or feeling we are, we have no need for so great a salvation.